So uh, I'm going to read, read you from our text this morning. I feel like I'm already slurring and I haven't even started preaching yet. All right, Philippians 2. If you want to turn there, uh, please do so. I'm going to read this. This is from the ESV translation. Some people call it the extra special version, but it doesn't matter because most English translations are just fine. So whatever translation you have, I'll flip over there to Philippians chapter 2. Let me read this, verses 12 through 18. The word of the Lord. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. It's the word of the Lord. So last week we established that Philippians is a book teaching us the master's story of Jesus Christ. Paul, as we will see again and in every week of this series, refers to himself continually as being in Christ, participating in Christ by his Spirit. He continually teaches us that the disciple of Jesus should have expectations that their life will be woven into Jesus' very own story in a way, suffering being a central part of it, but also new life from that death. I've entitled this sermon series, Becoming a Christ-like, cross-shaped church family, because I understand that to be Paul's continual reminder to the Philippian church. He is laboring hard to undo the very strong and deep Roman values of honor and shame, of rigid class separation, and the competition to outdo one another and gaining more honor for yourself at whatever cost. This is up and against the kingdom realities in Jesus. And they, like us, need to be reminded of the master story of Jesus if we are to properly gain an understanding of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple. And as we did last week, let's one more time read this master story together as found in Philippians. But instead of just reading it, I'm going to do something different to make you all feel weird and uncomfortable. Is that okay? Great. And the pews in front of you is uh, little red NIV Bibles. Okay, so please grab those. Flip to page 1162. Okay, as you're flipping there, because we all have the same translation now to be able to do that, I'm going to read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. But when we get to verse 5, I want all of you to read it aloud with me. And when you read it aloud, don't be shy. Use that outdoor voice. All right, let's fill this room with your voices. And yes, I prefer the old-fashioned paper to hands, okay? That's just who I am, so I don't have this on the screen behind me. There should be enough Bibles, though, around you, so please flip there. As you're flipping, I'm going to read the first four verses and jump in with me at verse 5. 
If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion that make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each one of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, everyone, join me. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There you go. You guys did great. That's our master's story, Emmanuel. Your life is wrapped up in that story. The patterns in Jesus' story will be traced throughout our life as his disciples and who he was, the true human, the living, truly human life as he lived. That's the goal of our discipleship as Christians. So it could be said, in other words, that, G- that to be Jesus' disciple is to become more human. So last week we ended on Paul's request that, the people of, that they become people of discernment, knowing exactly what to approve of, with the result that they bear the fruit of righteousness to the glory of God. This week, we're going to be examining this fruit for Paul that reveals itself in his motivations and also in his humility, all immersed in what was Paul's ultimate value, his great pearl of price for which he valued above all the gospel. The things he says in these verses are very difficult and challenging, but I believe it is actually a key piece for our modern times, for the modern church to really understand if we are to find spiritual health and growth into this very interesting world that we live in in the 21st century. Again, the way in which I approach and interpret the New Testament is through Jesus' glasses. His life and his story, and especially the Sermon on the Mount, really lies as the backdrop of the entire book. The Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus. The New Testament finds its explanation in him. Jesus was a man of action who called people not just to believe and be saved, but he bid them come and die to pick up their cross and to follow him. And that is central, as we will see this morning. If we do not continually chase after this understanding of our Bibles, then we can fall into many different pitfalls that takes us off mission, off discipleship, and can consume our identity as a church and make us about something other than the good news of Jesus. Christianity nor the church exists for the sake of itself. Emmanuel does not exist for Emmanuel's sake. Emmanuel is blessed with many things, but these things are not inherently who we are. 
The minute that we began to, con- that, that concave approach of existing for our own sake, for its own legacy's sake, and for its own reputation's sake, and etc., is the day that our expression of Christianity becomes about something other than Jesus. Usually, it winds up being about oneself. And this is so crucial to understand, but it begins with us. The ultimate thing that the church exists for is Jesus Christ. He is ultimate. And whenever we see the good news preaching and flourishing, whether it be here or whether it be at another church, we rejoice. Perhaps that's the subtle difference, but maybe not so subtle. If we exist only for this church's sake, then a church down the street that is growing rapidly can become an object of jealousy or even worse, competition. Perhaps we must then copy what they were doing to find our own success, we may think, to show them how it's really done. And this sermon is going to be ultimately about forgetting yourself, forgetting about yourself, as Paul does here. That may sound like an initially odd statement to forget about yourself, but we find Paul holding the gospel higher than anything else. So even when others were competing against him with a spirit of rivalry and probably even trying to steal members or say, hey, you know, Paul, all he did was say, he would say, great, I don't care, rejoice, the gospel's being preached. Guys, this is wonderful. The gospel's going out. I rejoice. He held the gospel so high that it led to him forgetting about himself and only thinking about Jesus Christ. That is what this sermon is going to be about today, so let's dig in. I'm really excited about this. Verses um, uh, 13 to 14, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for, or rather, in Christ, as we'll see. At the beginning here, what we see is Paul's kind of personal update to this church. He is in prison, and this is a letter to this church. He's in prison either in Rome or Ephesus. We can't really quite be sure. But however, in this introduction, Paul doesn't so much talk about himself, right? It's kind of like the introduction of a letter where he says like, hey guys, just want you to know what's going on with me, a little update, personal update. But his personal update is more about the gospel really than anything else. Now we know this is one of Paul's letters wrote from prison, one of, the, one of the prison letters, he has chains on his wrists. And the irony in these verses is that for an evangelist, you may think, well, man, you're chained to a wall. That's going to keep you from your evangelism. And he goes, no, 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 no. The chains have actually served to advance the gospel. Well, how could he preach if he's in chains, if he's in prison? As is usually true with Jesus' kingdom, the opposite of what you expect is occurring. The gospel is actually advancing through his chains. As Paul once said to his friend Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. 2 Timothy 2 verse 9. Indeed, God's word cannot be chained. Paul gives one of the ways that it has not been chained Uh, even where he is in prison, that the imperial guard or the praetorium, as the word says, um, along with the rest of the imprisonment, uh, they're keeping him in prison around him. They're aware of why he's in prison, because of Jesus. The praetorium guard were the literal, like, emperor's, like, personal bodyguards, all right? These are some of the elite in the Roman army, and Paul was being watched by them, and they became aware of the message that brought him to his chains, now, here's interesting, right? Most English, I'm sure most of your translations say that he was imprisoned for Christ. 
Yet literally, if you were to just jot it down literally and make it weird in English, as it would normally happen if you do a complete literal translation, you will see that he is actually saying that he is in, his imprisonment is in Christ. How is Paul imprisoned in Christ? Paul has so identified with Jesus and this master story that we just read aloud together that he knew Jesus had been imprisoned for living and speaking the good news of the kingdom and that in a way he was sharing in those sufferings of Christ by him also preaching the good news and then being chained like a criminal. We do not often take this to heart as we should. If you are a disciple of Jesus this morning, you are in Christ. It is who you are. It defines all of you, and the expectation of the disciple is one of complete and total surrender to our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. You are a new creation in Him. Jesus becomes not just our mediator in prayer, but the very mediator between us and everything else that we come in contact with. And it's so important to understand. He mediates our entire life, and everything that we come in contact with, boom, Jesus, then everything else. Grace abounds where sin is present among Jesus' followers, and the Spirit is found in power where obedience is found, where Jesus' people are truly living out that sharing in him that is already true. Now, Paul continues in his telling of the advancements of the gospel and explaining two other ways in which it has been spreading due to his imprisonment. The next verse. And most of the brothers, having been confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, brothers and sisters is implied in that word. Um, they are doing this, right? You ever, had a, you ever had a really hard task in front of you, and you're like, I'm not sure if I could do this. I remember, I'm, I don't like heights, okay? Me and ladders are um, not a thing, Okay. I even recently Val with mission of getting a ladder and doing something. I forget what it was. And I was like, I'll watch somebody else do that. Um, I, I don't know. It just freaks me out. I'm not stable. I, I, I tried athletics and everything, and I can't stand up straight half the time anyway. So balancing on a ladder, forget about it. It's just not my thing. There was a time when I was, there was a rock climbing thing at one of those like fairs or something. And I was like, I ain't doing that. And my buddy was like, oh, yeah, I want to do it. So he, he jumps up there. And then I'm like, you know what? I want to do that. And I tried and didn't get half his height. But you know, you ever feel that emboldenedness when you see somebody else do something hard? And you're like, you know what? I want to do that. Now, now I see that he did that. I'm, I'm going to go for it as well. This is what's happening when Paul in prison, right? He's preaching boldly and he gets in prison for it. And people are like, you know what? I want to preach like Paul did. I want to talk about Jesus like Paul did. You know, I'm not scared to suffer alongside of Paul if that's what it takes. And Paul says, some people are preaching, they see my chains, and they say, yes, thank you, Paul, for an example. I'm going to go preach like you did too, and I don't care what happens to me. And that's how they were emboldened in their faith to go and do as Paul did. And he rejoices in those people. But however, that, that's the majority, right? That's, that's most of them. But there's a minority here, okay? There's a minority of brothers and sisters where this is not the case, is what he says. But some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now there's two different kinds of people, one preaching from love, as we talked about, and one preaching from envy and rivalry is their motivation. Now, um, I don't like to focus on the negative, okay? 
Um, because oftentimes, you know, uh, the, the, I don't know, I just, I'm not like a negative guy. I like to focus on the positive. But I do think there's something here that is remarkably supernatural. And I, I think you probably see it as well, right? You're thinking, wait, Paul, they were, trying, they were out to tarnish your reputation, okay? They were probably bad-mouthing you. They were probably spreading stuff about you. They're trying to outdo you, okay? And he was like, I rejoice. The gospel's going out. Is that your first instinct to you, right? You ever had, I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you when somebody just it goes out to just try to like take you down, right? It happened to me once. Somebody had a portfolio of stuff and they were like, <laughs> I won't go into that story that deeply here, but they were like passing this portfolio out of like all this stuff I never did. This was years ago in ministry and I was just like, this is fascinating. Never happened to me before. What is this about? I don't know if it ever happened to you, right? You're at work and somebody spreads some kind of false rumor about you to just your reputation starts getting damaged, right? This is, that's hard, right? It's tough. The world is harsh out there. That can happen to any one of us. It's probably happened to most of you in this room at some point in time, okay? But Paul's reaction here is one of rejoicing, knowing that when this happened to him, it caused the gospel to go forth. We'll talk about more of why that was the case. And he rejoiced. That's a supernatural response. I'm going to dig into this, okay? Now, let's talk about a couple of things. Let's talk about Paul's ministry and what we learn about it from these people who are preaching out of rivalry and jealousy. Now, Paul had been granted uh, a lot of success across the Roman Empire, planting churches more than anyone else. He even labored hard than most of the other apostles. If you were a Christian in the western part, the more European part of the Roman Empire, your source, your, your origin of faith is either directly or one person away from Paul himself in this first century, right? Um, he was kind of a quote-unquote big deal in the early church, right, because of his success. So naturally, if one wants to compete with another rival, they must meet them on their own terms. This is where we learn a lot about Paul's ministry. For example, when I was managing at a coffee shop back in the day, uh, I'll never forget this, somebody snuck in line, and uh, right when they got where the drinks were being picked up, it was like a Sunday morning it was, or Saturday morning, it was crazy time, uh, lots of customers, and they put down their business cards, okay, right there, and they kind of, I saw them kind of run off pick up the business card that says, free coffee down the street at so-and-so's coffee shop, right? And so there's one more manager that was like above me in authority and he gets this and he goes into like rage mode and gets someone like chumps him at the guy and he's yelling at him and everything. It was kind of humorous, okay? But um, for that guy to try to compete with this coffee shop, he had to meet them on their own terms. They have coffee, we have better coffee. You have a lot of customers, will come over here. I got free coffee, it's even better. They had to meet this coffee shop that was at on its own terms, so what was Paul's terms here? What was the success that they were trying to compete with? Where did they have to meet him if they wanted to be his rival? Gospel preaching. Because Paul was primarily about Jesus crucified. Paul was primarily about the good news of Jesus and calling other people to take him on as their new Lord in Christ, becoming in him a new person. These people thought that they could do maybe perhaps a better job at preaching the gospel than Paul. This is a nebulous statement, so we're not quite sure what this rivalry really looked like. Maybe they saw some fault in his ministry. But in order for them to try to compete with Paul, they had to try and preach his message better than him. And Paul said, well, this is great. I love the gospel. Their motivations are eh, but they're preaching the gospel. They're trying to do it better to me. You know what? In that, I rejoice. Even those who are jealous of me and trying to take down our reputation and compete, that's fine, they're preaching Jesus, and in that I rejoice. So the first thing we take away from this very fascinating verse is that it reveals for us what was major for Paul. 
What were the terms of his ministry that they had to match? And it was the gospel. As you will hear me say over and over and over again, I want Emmanuel to be known as good news people. I want Emmanuel to be known as those, peop- as, as those people who keep talking about Jesus and all that he has done for us and just how much he loves us. I want to be spreading the good news continually that he wants to bring new life to those who are broken, that he wants you and I to continually be made into his image and together truly becoming the body of Christ to one another and to this community so that if success is granted to us here, it will be Jesus that gets the fame and not even our own church. It will not be some clever marketing schemes or interesting, funny, cute phrases on our church sign. None of that kind of stuff, but rather it will be because we are good news people. The second thing we can learn from this passage is Paul's attitude towards himself. This is where it gets fascinating. Paul had completely forgotten about himself. He wasn't concerned about himself here. Did that not strike you when you read this? Rather, he was concerned first with the preaching of the gospel, And however that was happening, he rejoiced. Now this is true in real humility is found in our master's story. And the amazing thing about this is this. Paul didn't need to even focus on humility. You don't focus on humility to be humble. It's like, I want to be more humble, so how do I I be more humble? Focus on humility. It's not really how Christian humility works. He needed, he, what he did was have his focus and his eyes and his heart and everything set on the gospel first and foremost. And by focusing on Jesus first and foremost, one of the first natural byproducts of that is following humility. Paul, stating that he doesn't care about his reputation much, um, as, the, as, the, uh, as the preaching of the gospel shows this remarkable humility that had overtaken his own life. These are some of the true chains of our human existence, is it not? That the gospel can offer complete and total freedom from. I want you to find this freedom as well to learn how to forget about yourself. So let's talk about this on the church level. I'm not, before I go into these things, I'm not talking about necessarily this specific church as I go down. I think of the churches I've been uh, uh, laboring at, and I, I think of all the churches that I, I know personally and just in round. These things, some of these things may be true here. They're also true of churches all around us. I, I've seen churches fall into a trap of these things. And so bear with me as, as I walk through this. Just bear with me and hear this out. What would it look like for a church to really forget about itself? Really consider that question. What would it look like for a church as an institution, if you will, to forget about itself by becoming solely about Jesus and Jesus alone? I think there is a question we can ask that will help diagnose this for us. When you think of this church, when you think of Emmanuel, what do you instantly connect it to? Instantly connect it to. I'm going to ask some questions here. Do you connect it with legacy? Legacy can be a good thing, as Paul's legacy was. But sometimes we can connect the church's very identity to a legacy first. And along the way, the church can begin, can begin existing for that legacy's sake. Number two, do you connect it with a people or with a person? People are the church. I guess that's probably the wrong thing. You should connect the church to the people. Okay, so let's more focus on the person aspect of this, right? Um, when I think of this church or that church, or the, you know, I, I think of blank person, per, a personality, if you will. The problem is with this, and I've seen this time and time again in my life, people are not perfect. And oftentimes people will fail you or they have failed you. 
Or in the positive sense, a person can lead to the massive success of a church, but can also become almost like a cult of personality following. A church is more than an individual person. I always joke in ministry that it is my chief job to labor here in such a manner that if I walk outside and a bus just turns me into a pancake, okay, that the church does not just come to a grinding halt. That things still go because there's other people laboring beside of me that hopefully can do things even better than me. And the church just keeps running after. If that does, right, if if everything comes to a complete halt, if I were to get hit by that bus, everything just stops. That means that I failed. I didn't do a good job of leading this church. This church isn't me. It's not about me. It's about us bearing this load together and that I need to be looking at the next leader for the next generation to say, how can you come alongside me now so eventually as I get older that I can send you out and kind of slowly fade in the background. Now, I personally see these things happen in so many churches and it can be devastating, devastating to a church. Number three, do you connect it, do you, when you think of this church or a church or the church, do you connect it to a specific event or era? Every church has both good and bad events in the past. You know, I have memories of Easter services that were incredible, right? And I even, I caught myself like two years later. Remember that one Easter service, how awesome that was? That was two years ago. Well, it was still awesome. Wasn't that great? You know, we, we still kind of like try to ride on those coattails of that really great Easter service, right? What about today? What's happening today? Right? What about the challenges we're facing us today that weren't happening two or three or five or ten years ago? What about today? We, we rejoice in our past successes, but that one event, but what about today? Number four, do you connect the church or a church or this church to specific doctrines? Doctrines are great, but doctrines exist to point us to Jesus. Minor doctrines are there, and they are fun to engage and think about. And trust me, I love doctrine. I love theology. I could bore you to death with theology talks that would last four hours, and you would probably not like me when it's done. But I, I love theology. I really do. But I've seen theology divide if I'm honest, divide more than glorify Christ and bring us to, I haven't seen theology as much as I wish I could have, bring us to fulfillment of Jesus' prayer for us and his high priestly prayer when he was praying this. He says, God the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved me even as you have loved me. Doctrinal identity is why we have 10,000 plus denominations. That's a sermon for a different day, but however, do you associate the church or this church or the church at Broad with a specific set of doctrines that's not specifically, you know, the gospel? Number five, do you connect the church to a facility? Okay, church buildings are beautiful, they're wonderful, they're blessings. Not every church has one. I play mobile church for almost 10 years and it's brutal, okay? It's exhausting and it wears you out, okay? But we know that Um, uh, the church is more than just a facility, right? Anything that the church has, anything the church is given, whether it's meeting in a school cafeteria or whether it's meeting in a 150-year-old building or or whether it's, it's having this beautiful facility that we have, that's not the church. Those are things to leverage for the church. They are not ends of themselves. Facilities are not ends in themselves, right? Everything doesn't stop at that. These things that exist, and their, uh, their purpose is for Jesus Christ. It's for furthering his mission. There's a greater goal that lies just beyond facilities. And so in all these situations, the church has not forgotten about itself. Far from it. All it does is remember itself. 
to find continual new life as a church, we must forget about our own church. And let me define what I mean by forget, okay? I'm not saying that we erase everything and just act like it doesn't exist, okay? That's not what I'm saying. And maybe forget is kind of a strong statement, okay? What I'm trying to really say is that uh, uh, we'll define what I mean by forgetting. Forgetting means this. You, you, you don't think, I'm going to get this right because i got tongue tied in the way here. Um, you, don't, you, you don't think less of yourself. You don't think less of a church's history or less of a church's facility. You don't think less of those things, but you think about them less. Does this make sense? You don't think less of those things, but you think about them less, Okay? We tracking with there? I'm going to apply that individually here in a moment. Ooh, it's getting long. It's okay. All right. So uh, we cannot become about anything other than good news people of Jesus Christ. We cannot first connect our own thoughts and hearts to Emmanuel or to any other church or to anything else. We cannot, that first connection must be Jesus Christ. Not towards others, not towards minor doctrine, not towards ancient legacies. We rejoice in these things in as much as they point us towards the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what I mean by forgetting about, our, about ourselves. <clears throat> All that he had, all that he did, Jesus himself did not consider as anything worthy to be grasped or to be leveraged. But he emptied all those things out. And this led to his love, his self-giving love. The self-giving of himself for the sake of us. And it led to his exaltation in the heavens. All that Emmanuel has had, has experienced, and is currently experiencing must first be connected to Jesus Christ. Does that occur within yourself? And if not, how can I, as your pastor, lovingly help and shepherd you towards that? For as a church, this is one of the first major steps we must take. It is taking our cue from Paul, forgetting about yourself, not caring about our own reputation first, but considering the gospel is all important. Secondly, let's go to individuals. You, all of you sitting in this room individually, and we'll close with this. How do we live our lives Forgetting about our own self, or not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Looking back to Paul, we see him rejoicing in people who were acting out of pure competition with him, out of rivalry. And even some New Testament scholars believe, Gordon Fee, one of the highest uh, New Testament scholars, he said, this is a classic example of what is called sheep stealing, right? Trying to take other members from a church and say, this guy's no good. You know, we can do it better than him. And trying to have them over there. Paul says, you know what, that's awesome. And his feeble attempts and jealousy, even if they are slandering me, he rejoices. And we talked about this, right? Because he forgot about himself. How did Paul get to the point where that was his attitude? He forgot about himself. Because stuff wasn't about him. The churches he planted wasn't about him. The churches he planted was not circling around himself, but rather the gospel. And he said, in all means that the gospel goes out in that I rejoice. He didn't have a thought that he cast down towards himself. You see how the gospel naturally leads to this kind of humility when we think of this idea of the master story of Jesus? For you, um, if you're, uh, yeah, you're leaving home, you go to work, okay, or whatever your day is like. I don't know all your days. When all the events that occur throughout your days, what connects all those dots? Is it you? Do you connect them all back to yourself? Is it the day really revolves around you? When you see that glass in front of the storefront, do you grab a quick glance and kind of, you know, do that real fast, you know? When helping someone that may inconvenience you, do you immediately connect the opportunity to serve them instead of saying, ugh, I'm really bad about this. I see a car on the, I, I grew up in Georgia with like Southern hospitality kind of stuff. Somebody on the side of the road, you take three hours and help them, whatever, okay? I lived in New Jersey in 10 years and I'm like, I got a flat tire. I, I, I got two minutes. I don't have two minutes to spare. I got to go, 
Right, that's the northeast, right? We all know that's the northeast here. Do you immediately think about your inconvenience in helping them, or do you see somebody that needs to be helped? Two different things. What's that first connection point, okay? Remember, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, right? So Timothy Keller, uh, very famously taught on this subject. I'm going to quote from him uh, right now. Uh, he wrote a little book that um, just is one of the biggest influences in my life. I have like 30 copies or f- maybe more than that in my office if you want one. It takes you an hour to read. Life-changing book, I'm telling you. 45-minute read, something like that. This is what he says. And I've stolen a lot of some of this language from him. And that's okay. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. Not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with all these people. Does that make me look good? What these people think about me? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means that I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. I want to see Emmanuel and all, this, and all, all the churches and us and individuals free from this. Paul sets the example for us, pointing us to how Jesus lived in our master's story. How can we live this way? How can we find such freedom, such gospel humility? By not focusing on humility. It's interesting, right? But by focusing on Jesus and chasing after him with all of your heart, with all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. Everything that is about something other than Jesus becomes then secondary. He is a mediator between you and that thing. Right? It becomes perhaps a good conversation or story here or there, but it's not your central identity as a person or as a church. We know a facility is wonderful, but a good friend of mine in Colorado just built a beautiful facility, and literally a year later, a tornado came and literally raised the entire thing to the ground. A year later. All right? Could you imagine that? They're still around today. That happened 13 years ago. They have a new facility because the church was more than that. Right? The church was more than just that. They kept going. Personally speaking, how can you create the mental habit of not thinking about yourself? Try practicing this. This is really tough. Don't think about yourself for a whole day. For a whole day. Avoid mirrors. Avoid conversations about you. And try to only invoke conversations gained at getting to know others. When you pray, pray to know Jesus more and pray for those around you. When things inconvenience you at home, consider how it might be something that serves others. Like spending an entire day at Ikea on a Saturday, like yesterday, outside of New York City with your wife, like I did. A trip that unfortunately started, it started off great. I was doing great. I was tired. You know, it's a crazy season for us. And she's like, let's go to Ikea. And I'm like, I got this. I can do this. I'm going to serve her. This is great. She's going to pick out stuff for our new house. It's going to go great. I was tired. I stayed up late because I'm a dummy. And I was already kind of grumpy. I was like, no, I got this. We're all, we're all good. All right. Three hours in. My tone changes to whatever you would like, honey. I'm here to serve you to, okay, hurry up. I have things at home. I got to finish. I'm tired. The trip culminated with us running out of time to eat lunch and then me needing to use the restroom after the car was loaded up and getting told off by an Ikea employee for walking into the wrong door of the building. I couldn't access the bathroom and I was hungry and I had to go and I, and I got mad. So the day it started off great turned out to be about me. What would have happened if I had connected the whole day to Jesus and let him mediate that day between me and my wife? Well, none of those things should have mattered as much as me serving her like Jesus did. 
That perhaps is a trivial thing, but it is a pattern that we are called to live in day to day. So Emmanuel, I can promise you this. As Keller called it this, he said the freedom of self-forgetfulness can lead you to the most, uh, yeah, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, like, this is the reality of it. It can lead you to the most spiritually healthy and emotionally healthy life that is possible because it truly reflects the life and heart of Christ. As a church, it is not out of reach. As individuals, it is as close as the Holy Spirit within you. And it may be yours in Christ. As we move forward as a church, may this freedom of self-forgetfulness on the church level and also on the individual level mark who we are as a church, leading us to rejoice in Christ and the good news above all else. Let us pray. Jesus, as we close our service this morning, this is a hard, this has been such a, uh, you know, it's one of those sermons that I, I love to preach when the opportunity comes. When I see Paul, who just seemed to really exercise this in his life, he was just a human. So it's inspiring for us knowing that if Paul could do it, a fallen person like us, then it is in the grasp by the help of the Holy Spirit in our life as well. He wasn't perfect by any means. But Lord, it, this kind of life is possible. And our, our nation is just so embedded with individualistic, selfish kind of patterns of thinking about everything. Lord, we are trained just to do the things that makes us happy or just to choose the, the choice of comfort above anything else. This is how we're trained in our nation, how hard these things are. And Lord, as a church, Lord, all the blessings that we've received as a church, we can make those blessings an end to themselves and forget about you in the process and forget about the gospel being primary in the process. Lord, we want to forget about those things, not to deny them as blessings and, and wonderful things, but Lord, we want to think about them less and think about you more. We want to recognize them and rejoice in them only in so much as it guides us to be men and women of good news. Jesus, we repent of our sin when we fail in these things, but Lord, your grace abounds. It knows no, no end. It's deep and it's wide, and your love for us will never fail us. You will never forsake us. And Lord, this journey is tough. And Lord, I want to set the bar that high, Lord, because you set it high. This is what you're calling us to. This is the kind of life that you are calling us to live. So Jesus, help me, help every single person in this room to, to, uh, to, to live in this manner, Lord. And may your Holy Spirit help us. And Lord, I pray as we leave this place in all of our weeks and however they look, Lord, bring people into our path that need to hear the good news, that need to be loved, that need to be cared for, that need a good invitation to this church. Bring those people into our path. Give us eyes to be aware of it, Lord. And in that moment, regardless of how inconvenient it may be or how uncomfortable it may be, may we know that the gospel is ultimate and that person was in our path for a reason. Lord, may we be missionaries and servants to our city this week. We love you, Jesus, so much. We pray in your good name. Amen.